Welcome to LifeSide Beat. I'm your host, Shubham Chatterjee. For today's podcast, I'm delighted to share my interview with Imogen Price, Chief Operating Officer of R&D at Relay Therapeutics. Relay Therapeutics is a clinical stage precision medicines company that integrates disparate technologies to push drug discovery. Specifically, its platform integrates leading edge computational and experimental approaches designed to drug previously intractable protein targets. Imogen, as COO, manages all operational aspects of R&D, from budgeting to recruiting to program and portfolio selection. Prior to Relay, Imogen worked in corporate strategy at Shire Pharmaceuticals, and prior to that, was a principal at the Boston Consulting Group, where she focused on healthcare consulting. Imogen holds a BS from The Ohio State University and a PhD in chemical engineering from the California Institute of Technology. We dove into computational drug discovery, portfolio management, target selection, and so much more. So please join me and Imogen on LifeSide Beat. Imogen, thank you so much for joining us on LifeSide Beat. I'm really excited to have you. Thank you for having me. So there's a ton that I'd love to cover, and we'll jump right in. To start us off, it's a question that we like to ask many of our guests just to begin the conversation. What did you want to be when you were growing up and how did it lead you to where you are today? It's a great question. I think, you know, I've listened to a few of these podcasts and I think there seems to be a theme of people not totally knowing what they want to do. And fortunately or unfortunately, I fall into the same bucket. I think there were two two things have driven me and one of those things is really being excited and interested in technology and the application of technology to solving problems and making the world a little bit better. And then the second one is people and working with people that really energize me and make me excited about what I'm doing. And for better or worse, that's how I've made a lot of the decisions about where I've gone and where I'm going. This started, obviously, when I went off to college. You know, I was interested in science and math and engineering provided a really practical way to start to use that interest and apply some of the skills I had there. That was a natural sort of fit and I really enjoyed the work. I enjoyed the teamwork aspect of that. I started my academic life more on the sort of alternative energy side and migrated over the course of my time in academia from alternative energy to other sorts of fun devices to biosensors. You know, my PhD was in nanotechnology and my advisor was amazing at storytelling and bringing people together from across different disciplines. I think I saw that our lab could thrive and develop solutions and do things that others couldn't necessarily do because of this approach and this real teamwork approach. And so then as I finished my degree, I jumped at the opportunity to go into consulting. Again, it was an opportunity to work in teams and improve the world and and think about how we can do things better. I gravitated towards the healthcare team there. I ended up learning a ton about portfolio prioritization, how companies are structured, how companies fit together, how you think about strategy and, and where you go. I worked across global health, med tech, and of course, biopharma. And I loved the teams. I loved, I loved BCG. I loved the people that were there. And for me, you know, I went thinking that I would be there for a couple of years and then I would gravitate back towards the science. And I turned around after 
over five years of being a consultant and realized that I was still a consultant. And for me, I really wanted to build something. I really wanted to get my hands a bit more dirty than you do in consulting. And around the same time, a friend of mine was at Shire. They'd recently bought back Salter. He asked me to join his team and help think about what they were doing there. And it was a really exciting moment for that company as they thought about their strategy, as they thought about their portfolio. Again, coming back to this theme, I was working with somebody who I respected, who I knew the problems were really interesting to solve. Fast forward a couple more years, you know, I was talking to the CEO of Relay. He was building out his team and he was thinking about how to really scale. They were on the verge of taking the Series C. And it was a really interesting moment where they were thinking about how could they do research in a different way. So that seemed like an exciting proposition. And I met with the team and the team was just a fantastic group of people who were incredibly smart, incredibly passionate, and also very humble. And so it really spoke to me. And it was a group of people that I, that I wanted to work with. Combine that with the opportunity to make the world a little bit better and change patient lives. It seemed like a no-brainer to jump at the opportunity. So I joined Relay four years ago now, beginning of 2019. You know, we were preclinical. We were about 70 people, and we were really just starting out and trying to figure out how to make things work. I love that because there is that common theme, as you mentioned, Imogen, in terms of gravitating towards people that you really love working with and really respect and having that as sort of the basis for your next career step. I'd love to pause a bit on that transition between consulting to industry. It's not necessarily something that's uncommon in the industry. And so were there times where you felt there were certain consulting skill sets or experiences that transitioned particularly well going into the industry or maybe even particularly poorly from your own experience? I'll uh, maybe start with the second part of your question. I don't regret for a second going into consulting. I think consulting is a phenomenal training ground for so many jobs and so many careers. So I think particularly as we think about biopharma and biotech, there are just phenomenal things that you learn as a consultant. I think one of the biggest things is taking something that's very ambiguous, taking something that's amorphous and bringing order to that chaos. I think that's something that consultants get very, very good at. It's almost the name of the game in early stage biotech, right? Early stage biotech is full of unexpected twists and turns, and your consulting training gives you tools to, to manage that. So I think it comes down to a few things. I think there's organization of things and being able to put a little bit of structure around something that may not be obvious. Early research timelines, what does that even mean? Science is difficult and it's going to explode on you. And how do you think about that? Or ex-consultants have a way of starting to think about that. One of the, the other things you learn as a consultant that I think is often underappreciated is the ability to tell a really good story. Consultants have to be good at this. You get dropped into these situations where you are the least knowledgeable in a room. You have to absorb a huge amount of information and start to develop a hypothesis and start to develop an understanding of what's going on and how things fit together very, very quickly. And this is a skill that's incredibly important as you're building a biotech and thinking about how do I talk to my investors? How do I talk to the board? How do I talk to the company and the people who are a part of making this work? I think the last piece comes back to previous points, right? To sort of this people aspect. You learn to work with all sorts of people as a consultant. Not only are you being 
every few months dropped into a new consulting team where you have to learn the partner and the other consultants on the team and the people that may be peripherally involved. But you also have to work with all sorts of different clients who are coming with different backgrounds and different expertise and different strengths. And you have to very quickly figure out what the profile of that person is. And I think as you start to think about building a biotech, that is an incredibly valuable skill. Yeah, it sounds like those skills transitioned really well. And now you're, of course, at Relay Therapeutics, your COO, R&D. It's an incredibly exciting company. And so for our listeners, can you describe what Relay Therapeutics does just at a high level to start off? So Relay Therapeutics was founded in 2016, really at the forefront of this new breed of biotech company at the intersection of leading edge computational and experimental technologies. And the idea was really, at the time, you could bring these different disciplines together and create precision medicines and and ultimately transform drug discovery. We talk about our Dynamo platform, and essentially what that is, is we break down problems into discrete sub-problems that can be solved using this integrated approach, normally AI-powered by an experimental foundation. When you are thinking about companies, and clearly probably the next question that your listeners would have is, what have you chosen to focus on? What what are you going after here? And biology is incredibly complex. And so the way we've thought about this is, let's start with challenges that we can solve. Um, And the problems we focused on is finding medicines for proteins that we know are implicated in disease. So we focus on proteins where there are clear proof points, where there's there's some sort of translational de-risking that has happened. And we know that drugging them will lead to some sort of effect. So an example of this is that we might begin to dial out off-target effects of medicines that work, but are limited by side effects. And there are many of these types of proteins out there, right? One of the clearest examples, at least for me at the moment, top of mind is a frequently mutated kinase in cancer that's implicated in a large number of new breast cancer patients, PI3K-alpha. And it just remains very poorly drugged. And so that's really the type of problem that, that we want to go after, are those where we know that if we are able to modulate this protein dynamics, then we should be able to see something Then you get to the question of how. So how do you go after that? And this is really about this integrated approach and using experimental and computational techniques. The first part of this is visualizing the protein and identifying emotion-based hypothesis. The second part is really identifying chemical starting points. And then then the third piece is evolving those starting points and really optimizing drug-like properties and these molecules to the point that you can take them into clinical trials to prove them out. So that all sounds great, you may be saying. What's the proof? So I think, you know, over the last six years, you know, we've validated our platform and our approach, and we've built a significant advantage just by accumulating experience doing this a number of times. We've developed three oncology programs from scratch, advanced them into clinical trials. So One of our first programs was a SHIP2 inhibitor, and that program we actually partnered with Roche Genentech. Our second program is an FGFR2 inhibitor. It's RLY4008, and we've had some really exciting data recently on that. Just over a year ago, in December of 2021, we entered the clinic with the first of a franchise of molecules 
that should inhibit PI3K alpha in a mutant-selective way, and that particular compound is ROI2608. We also have just a robust preclinical pipeline behind these programs, and we continue to be really excited. And I think the thing that's really interesting about Relay is, is the bespoke manner in which our team integrates and combines a really broad range of different tools and techniques to problems that we're going after. That's incredibly exciting. And I like how we've broken that problem down a little bit into something tangible in terms of finding the right proteins to target, and then finding the right chemical starting points and evolving them further. In this space, I know that often there's a lot of different words thrown around like molecular dynamics or finding novel chemical matter. Just as we start to dig into the Dynamo platform a bit more that Relay has, could we make this a bit more real in terms of an example that integrates the experimentation and the computation for drug discovery, maybe through one of the programs? Absolutely. So a backup just a little bit, and I think explain relative to, to traditional drug discovery techniques, how do we think about this? Traditional structure-based drug design originated in the 1980s and was incredibly exciting and was adopted across the industry, but had a couple of clear challenges with it. The first one was that it uses images of protein fragments as the basis of understanding how to drug proteins. And what's wrong with this is that you're looking at a protein, you know, it's basically a still picture. Part of the image is missing. This isn't how proteins exist in cells, right? They exist as multiple domains linked together, constantly interact with each other, moving from confirmation to confirmation. So that's one of the challenges. The second is really that your ability to test potential molecules is limited by what you can synthesize. So that means you can only test a very small fraction of potential therapeutics. So those were sort of the challenges at the moment that Relay was founded of how drug discovery was happening. So now think about when Relay is founded. Relay was founded when genomic data was increasing rapidly. So we knew more about disease in a genetic way than we ever had before. Experimental insight was improving in a very dramatic way with the rise of things like cryo-EM, which allowed us to better visualize proteins and understand what proteins were doing. And then at the same time, you were seeing exponential increases in computational power. So you put all of these things together, and now you can start to understand in a dynamic, movie-like way how your proteins are moving. And we can start to get insight on how to drug these proteins Secondly, and I alluded to this previously, but secondly, you can now test billions of compounds in silico because you have this very sophisticated simulation of a protein that you didn't previously have. And so now I can very rapidly and effectively get to an answer about what I'm trying to do. So now with that as the backdrop, I'll come back to your question. So now let's take as an example, RLY4008, RFGFR2 inhibitor. And here, we were able to see that with traditional drug discovery techniques, you were looking at a static protein. Now, what's the challenge with FGFR2? FGFR inhibitors have been limited by off-isoform activity. So the drugs that are currently on the market have challenges or have toxicities related to hitting FGFR1 and FGFR4. Now, when I look at these using standard static techniques and I look at, say, FGFR1 and FGFR2, these two proteins look the same using traditional drug-based design. 
If I now use the relay approach and I'm able to compare these two proteins and understand the differences between these two isoforms, now I can start to think about how I might drug one versus the other, and I can appreciate the differences. Our scientists used these insights to design RLY4008, which you know, we believe is the first highly selective and irreversible inhibitor of FGFR2. The pattern of selectivity across the kinome shows that it's highly differentiated. Preclinically, we were able to show that. We've now presented clinical data a number of times on this compound, most recently at the ESMO Congress on September 11th of 2022. You know, we've been able to show that it's got a favorable safety and tolerability profile. You do not see the off-target toxicities that you see with some of the PAN inhibitors. And ultimately, we've been able to show that there's a benefit in patients. So we've seen, you know, out of 17 patients with an FGFR2 fusion-driven cholangiocarcinoma, naive to prior FGFR inhibitors, we saw 15 of those patients achieve a tumor response at, at our recommended phase two dose. That translates to an ORR of 88%. It's a fantastic demonstration, I think, of the power of what we're doing. So it sounds like a really interesting picture, as you mentioned, right, Imogen, in terms of figuring out how the proteins can actually wiggle, so to speak, in this computational platform, figuring out those new confirmations with the dynamics that the platform allows, and then being able to create novel chemical matter that's actually specific to one of those confirmations versus the other that you wouldn't have otherwise found. I think there's a piece or two around this intersection of machine learning and drug discovery that's being surfaced a bit that I wanted to come to light. So one is around the importance of training data and training that Dynamo platform to be able to identify, for example, a new confirmation or a new binding pocket. So within the context of Relay, how do you go about generating the right quantity and quality of data? I mean, it's a great question. And I think we have talked about the fact that we're breaking problems down. And so data can mean a lot of different things at different points along the drug discovery continuum. Machine learning models depend on high quality, relevant data. If you're building a model to identify birds and you train the model on pictures of parrots, it probably won't do a good job of predicting on pictures of penguins. Molecules are similar. You need to ensure that your models are trained on relevant regions of chemical space. So having both experimental and computational capabilities ensures that we have the most relevant data to train our models. And if we identify a region of chemical space where our models are performing poorly, we can do additional experiments to improve the models. And this constant cycle of computation and experiment really enables us to identify new therapeutics efficiently. At Relay, we're extensively using physics-based methods such as molecular dynamics, which you've alluded to previously, and free energy calculations. The methods are computationally expensive and generate vast amounts of data. So by employing machine learning together with these physics-based methods, we can benefit in two ways. We can use techniques like active learning to explore large data sets efficiently. And we can use AI methods to analyze these large data sets and gain insights to drive the next round of experiments. In addition to applying machine learning in our later stage programs, we're also applying it in the earliest phases of our programs. And so it includes sort of thinking about 
potential hits and how we can use different binding sites. So active learning allows us to search a virtual database of more than 50 billion molecules and identify molecules that will fit into a binding site. This is analogous to searching through billions of keys to find one that will fit into a lock. The newer techniques that we've been thinking about deploying is machine learning in conjunction with DNA-encoded library screening. And this allows us to analyze the results of ultra-high throughput experiments involving billions of molecules and identify novel starting points for our drug discovery programs. So all of these techniques are complementary and we're continuing to explore combinations of them across computation and experiment. I mean, that sounds incredibly interesting, and it makes sense as well that the loops of experimentation with the in silico analysis also means that I'm guessing the data acquisition also becomes a little bit easier over time because you've explored certain spaces and learned from those spaces, and you can use those learnings to explore new spaces and continually build the platform in terms of how it is trained on the kinds of data that you give it. I think that covers the training piece in really insightful detail. I'm also curious about the therapeutic program piece. So I know that there's a lot of biotechs operating in a similar space as Relay does with these powerful platforms that then pursue several therapeutic programs at once versus maybe more traditional biotechs that focus on just one or two assets. So what does it mean to move from just a few assets in development to you know, 10 plus programs at once? And how do you then think about portfolio prioritization and resource allocation? There are a few points in there. I think one of the points that you alluded to is that, you know, the more that we do, the better we get. So, and that's true whether you're talking about the very earliest stages of drug discovery, where you're trying to understand how a protein works and how you would want to modulate the protein. In that world, you're thinking about the crystallography, you're thinking about how do I develop the earliest molecular dynamic simulation of this protein? How do I really understand what's going on? The second piece of the puzzle around hip binding, you know, especially things like virtual screening and how you deploy those, that is absolutely a place where the more times you do this, the more you understand how to get better at it. And then in the final piece of the puzzle, you're optimizing a lead candidate and really trying to improve drug-like properties. And there, again, the same is true. As you refine your models and as you refine your approach, you get better and better at this. So I think you're right in the sense that the more programs that we do, the better we get at all of these different pieces of the puzzle. I think as we think about portfolio prioritization, it, it's multifaceted, but our strategy has really been to select targets that we're very excited about. And so what does that mean? That means well-validated proteins, so proteins that are drivers of disease, where you can clearly identify patient populations, back to this point around genomic data, where the translational risk is low and you've got clinical or genetic validation of the target where there's a rapid path to clinical POC, where you know that you should be able to quickly understand in the clinic if something is working, and also where there's platform fit. And I think if we're going after targets where those things are true, then the portfolio prioritization and the work that we do to think about resource allocation is relatively straightforward. I'd love to then talk a bit more about the piece around target selection 
and what it means about risk implications for relay therapeutics, because we've touched on this a little bit already. But if we think about different kinds of risks that relay might have, there's a piece around the platform risk around maybe using the computation to find ways to drug targets like the molecular dynamics that we've discussed. There's a bit of technology risk in terms of using the platform to then create this very specific and very selective you know, chemical matter to go after those pockets or to go after those targets. And then, as you just mentioned, there's the biology risk, which is to say, even if I do all of this right and hit the target, will I actually get the intended therapeutic effect in the patient? And I know Relay goes after some of these really well-validated targets, targets that are important in important diseases to sort of de-risk some of the biology risk. But if we take a step back, how does Relay think about the different kinds of risks that are at play here? I think we've talked a lot about the final piece around biology risk, right? And so that is one where you want to minimize that as much as you possibly can. That can be a very expensive risk to get wrong. It can take a lot of years. It can take a lot of money to understand in the clinic whether or not something is working. So especially in the context of being a smaller biotech, I think that's a risk that we want to minimize as much as possible. You know, everything's a trade-off, right? That comes at the expense of things that are harder technically to go after, things that require greater lift of the platform. And that's how we tend to think about the world, really, in these two buckets of translational risk and then platform risk. I love that answer because it also acknowledges the fact that not all risks are created equal. As you mentioned, some risks are really more expensive than others, and there are obviously trade-offs that come with it. I think there's one interesting trade-off about going after these well-characterized, well-validated targets like the PI3K alphas of the world, for example, in that there's also quite a few other players that are trying to go after these targets, albeit through maybe different techniques, but ultimately trying to sort of drug maybe the same protein. And so in the era of fast followers, how does Relay think about differentiation and the difference between you know, first-in-class versus best-in-class? The targets that we go after are genetically or clinically validated targets, and there are other people who have either played in this space or who are interested in this target. That being said, they tend to be targets that have either not been drugged effectively or have not been drugged at all. And so, yes, there may be a number of people going after targets that we're interested in, but we haven't seen effective therapies yet for many of, of the programs that we have. So if we continue to choose targets where there is genetic or the clinical validation of the targets, there will be others who are playing in this space because they're incredibly compelling and they're incredibly large and important problem to solve for patients. That being said, you know, we continue to believe that platform is allowing us to do things in a way that gets us to really compelling chemical matter. And the real proof of that is going to be in our clinical data and in the outcomes that you see for patients. And that's ultimately where all of these molecules will get judged. Yeah, and I think it brings up an interesting point of which targets you go after, and then also making sure that you have the speed of operationalization, but then again, differentiating enough to make sure you can actually hit a target and generate the right sort of clinical results. If we also then look forward within the space of structural drug discovery and using computation and machine learning, I think it's becoming an increasingly crowded space. And so how does Relay think about demonstrating its continued leadership when there's more and more competitors entering this intersection of machine learning and drug discovery? You know, 
it's a testament to the importance of doing drug discovery this way. And so combining experimental and computational approaches is becoming more common. So what differentiates Relay in this space? I think we've been at this longer than, than other companies. Six years ago when we launched, this was not a particularly fashionable area. And we've built a body of knowledge and experience that we believe is unique in combining disparate approaches into making the medicine. And then the second aspect is focus. You know, we focus on a very specific area of drug discovery with a very disciplined and defined target selection strategy. And we're focused on making innovative medicines and working on validated protein targets with low translational risk. Our aim is to really drug these proteins using our Dynamo platform. So I think that's sort of the second biggest piece. And then the third is that at each stage of the process, we're really focused on making it more effective and more efficient using an integration of computation and experimentation. So be that in the target modulation hypothesis phase, in HIP finding, lead optimization, really how do we drive integration to improve that? You know, we've seen other companies where they'll have a small amount of computation on a much larger experimental engine or vice versa. And for us, we've always thought about this as very much integrated, very much a partnership from the very beginning, from the earliest phases of this company. The other thing we're doing is always looking at what else is out there and how we can improve and, and build upon what we have. So a prime example of this would be the integration of machine learning Dell into our platform with the acquisition of Zebi AI. And this has enhanced both the experimental and the computational sides of our platform. Well, I certainly think it's defensible and it's going to be a winning formula. So uh, I'm excited to see where Relay Therapeutics goes next. As you said, it's been one of the earlier leaders. And so it'll continue to get better and faster and more integrated over time. And you're going after really well-validated targets. So exciting to see the clinical readouts and, and what's next for Relay. Thank you so much for your time, Imogen. It's been an incredibly insightful conversation in a really exciting space as well. And so I think our, our listeners are going to really enjoy this. Before I sign off, I think it'd be remiss if I didn't ask and someone in my position and then others like me, a bit of advice for early stage bio entrepreneurs and, and what you think would be um, exciting next steps for us. Absolutely. Well, four pieces of advice. I think first, it's all about the people. Spend time building and cultivating relationships with people that you really want to spend time with. You spend a lot of time with people when you're building a biotech. Be humble. Be okay with your career path not being linear. I think, you know, you can't really always plan where you're going to go. And so be okay with that. And then finally, don't be afraid to ask for help. This probably goes hand in hand with being humble, but don't be afraid to ask. People are going to want to help you. Amazing. Well, I'll certainly take that to heart. Hopefully our listeners will as well. And otherwise, thank you so much for an amazing conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Imogen. Thanks, Shubham. Thank you.